uh, I'm okay. My kitty cat is at the vet today. Oh, and no. so I'm very uh, trepidous. She's had her tooth pulled so okay. and extracted, but they had to knock her out to do it because, you know, try pulling a tooth out of the cat without that. And then I just went ahead and had them do the gambit of things, you know, yeah. uh, refresh her on uh, immunizations and, and all that. But I don't like it when she's away from me because she's a skittish cat so she mm-hmm. just hates it and I, it's like I can feel her hatred of everything that's happening did you send her with like a, a bracelet of yours or something shiny to keep her a sock no I think she's gonna be pretty out of it since so she's gonna be coming out of anesthesia I should have sent her with a sock she's a she's such a foot cat or like Dude. something of mine to smell yeah I don't know yeah, but I pick her up at three um, okay. and I have to hit the store and get some wet cat food on the way because I've got to be doing that for a couple days now. So Yeah. Oh, poor kitty cat. I hope she feels better soon. She needed it done though. So I'm yeah. glad it's done and over with and that she got out through it okay because I got a call recently that she's she's okay. She's good. She's just good. sleeping it off until I pick her up at three. Yeah. Monitored. Good deal. Yeah, I even spent the extra money for the fluids to keep her super hydrated and nice. And everything Ooh, she's else. gonna be feeling good. Oh yeah, the vets the vets totally saw me coming. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, and would you like to pay extra for pain meds? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, what about extra fluids to keep her hydrated and make sure that she comes out of anesthesia okay and has an emergency port in case something goes wrong during the operation? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Uh, and would you like cucumber slices for her little kitty eyes? Yes. <laughs> Give her everything. She's my life. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm glad she's going to be just fine. Sounds like. I'll pay for the kitty massage and everything. Just <laughs> give me the deluxe package. <laughs> oh, man. That's probably the one industry that millennials are not killing. Oh, is, yeah, for sure. It's like the bougie pet. Care. pet. Yeah. Yeah. I told Christy she needs to start. She has this line of jewelry called Stylish Aim. I highly mm-hmm. suggest people come and check it out. It's but beautiful. It, they I use have some pieces and it's it's gorgeous. Anyway, it's fantastic. Yes. Uh, she does this handcrafted leather pieces. Mm-hmm. But lately, one of the cats, Rocket and Little Face Two, has been especially obsessed with these tassels that she makes for different types oh, of jewelry and earrings. Yeah, and they've been going into her room and stealing them. And leaving them on my bed which one it's awesome that the cats give me jewelry right stealing's not okay but i told christy like if they keep liking them she should probably make that a product line that would be and cool I, I suggested she named it the bougie cat <laughs> bougie cat cat toys <laughs> i love it well and she since it's leather crafting she could make some really cool collars and stuff too oh yeah she could have a whole pet line stylish shame bougie cat so this has been supposedly consultant corner. <laughs> We're clearly uh, <laughs> research and development now. So, hey, by the way, welcome Hi. to Supposedly. Oh, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. I'm real. Bruce. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, I'm Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Bruce going to bum you out first today. And then hopefully I'm going to come in with uh, some creepy palate cleanser. Uh, yeah. Creepy cleanser. Great. <laughs> We're probably going to need it because this one's not great, but I'm okay. really excited to tell it um, because it's something that I think is important. Okay. But we're going to get sad for a little bit, you guys. So what are you doing? Because you didn't tell me. I've told everyone what I'm doing. I put my cards on the table. You Time did. To what you got. You did. So I'm trying to decide because there are a couple different names that we're going to be using in this story. 
I'm trying okay. to decide if I want to make it like a, a sneaky reveal or yeah, just do that. drop it off the top. Sneaky um, reveal. Always a sneaky reveal. But I will preface and say that this episode comes out on Tuesday, like they all do, but it's two days before Thanksgiving. Oh, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. Do you have any plans for Thanksgiving? Well, Christy's kids are going to come over and with COVID being as bad as it is right now, we're in an extremely high red zone. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to do a small little Thanksgiving thing. I'm going to make green bean casserole and the pies I normally make. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think everyone's doing it small or should be. If you're not, check yourself. (laughs) Before you wreck yourself. Literally. Um, because yeah, there's absolutely no reason to have a huge Thanksgiving and it sucks that we can't be with our families, but I'd really like to be able to be with my family next year. And so I would like for them to all stay alive and in order to do that. Yeah. So don't do that. But anyways, I thought that this story would be fitting given that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. I can't wait. That makes me so much more excited. It's topical. Oh, so topical. Look at you being topical. Oh, I I try. So this is a blanket statement that there are a lot of words in this story that I am not quite sure how to pronounce properly. So basically, it's just another week here on Supposedly. just another week here on Supposedly. We're trying our best. I spent a lot of time on like vocabulary.com and like the how do you pronounce this word YouTube channels, but a lot of these words aren't on those pages because they're very specific. And so I'm just you know, doing my best. You, we're a team. You help me, I'll help you. There you go. So for today's story, we are heading down to the eastern woodlands of what is now Virginia. All okay. right, going to Virginia. Yeah. Virginia is for lovers. Yeah, so I've heard. So what is now Virginia was for thousands of years where the Powhatan people lived. I want to talk a little bit about this community of people. So leadership of the Powhatan was broken up among 32 tribes. So there was a paramount chief who oversaw all of these tribes, totaling about 25,000 people. And each of those tribes had their own leaders called werewinces or werewinces squaws if they were um, women. So a little bit of like a king over lordship. Somewhere between where the that, see the regions and be kind of in control of the regions, but the king would be over everybody as a whole. Something like that, or like okay. president versus governors, just kind of like you know there was the tiered leadership. Right. Yeah, the pyramid scheme of power, as I like to refer to it as. Ooh, I like it. Thank you. Yeah, you should uh, copyright that. Copyrighted. Oh, boom! I know it doesn't work that way, but i declare bankruptcy i declare bankruptcy i declare it's copyrighted the pyramid of power (laughs) maybe we'll put that on a t-shirt someday yeah pyramid of power (laughs) jesse's doing a wonderful pyramid dance by the way yeah you can't see what i'm doing but it looks like a robert langdon illuminati initiation just think if like you were gonna do vogue but with a pyramid and the pyramid starts above your head and then comes down to your jawline and goes right under your jaw Uh uh-huh and it's like slightly isosceles which i i'm here for well oh yeah (laughs) i'm I'm doing it so it looks okay on camera i thought but really (laughs) oh maybe i'm I'm bad at, see, now you've got me in my head and I can't make my pyramid dance. The pyramid of power, pyramid scheme of power, conspiracy theories. 
All right. So Celeste triangle. Okay. You might want to time code where you're listening right now. And remember that this is the happy place and listen back to this uh, time signature when you feel like you need a little pick me up because we're going to get dark. So okay. these communities lived in different areas in the Eastern woodlands. And I mean, their structure was really similar to ours. Everyone paid taxes and goods to their leader who in turn paid taxes to the pyramid or God damn it, Jesse, the paramount, <laughs> the isosceles. No, the, the tip of the pyramid of power. Yep. And in return, that tip of the pyramid, Paramount Chief, gave everyone protection. He protected the pyramid. Stop. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the Powhatan people lived on riverbanks or near tributaries in Yeehawkins, not wigwams or teepees. Would you describe that? Yeah. So they were small, like saplings, so really thin branched trees made up the structure. Um, They were slightly domed and then they would be covered with like grass mats or sometimes bark, something willowy and, you know, easy to to weave into. Flexible weaving. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Um, and it looked like the structure would be all of your houses and buildings would kind of be within this circular fenced in area. And then like the crops and such would be outside of that. Oh, cool. Yes. Have you ever been to the Cohokian Mounds? I believe I'm saying that. Cohokian, yeah. Cohokian Mounds, yeah. yeah. Um, I believe they kind of had a little bit of a similar living I type. think it was something similar. Something similar, if but I'm not, not exact. Mistaken. Yeah, it's been years. So I went to the Kohikian Mounds with my friend Ryan Zexer, who we call oh, nice. Sexy Zexy. Nice. And we bought Mounds Bars and took pictures with Mounds Bars in front of the Kohikian Mounds. Oh, that's awesome. No, I think those are so... <laughs> my grandmother lived about 45 minutes away from those. They're in Illinois, just on the other side of St. Louis, for anyone who's not sure what we're talking about. And they are indigenous burial mounds. And they're so freaking cool to see. Um, because they're just literally these massive they're basically like grassland plains pyramids yeah yeah and they're really impressive it's coming up a lot (laughs) all right uh so planting and season cycles were really important to the Powhatan people and they relied on food stores to get through these difficult winters I'm sure anyone Mm -hmm. who lives in that region can tell you the winters are not a fun happy time Now that we've talked a little bit about the community that we're going to be talking about and dealing with for our story, we're going to fast forward to 1596. Will you make a fast forwardy sound? Boop, 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 boop. Oh, I love that. Ah, you're welcome. Uh, I've never said fast forward to the 1500s before. That feels so strange, but that's just to give you an idea how long these people really lived in this area. 1596 or thereabouts. A beautiful baby girl is born to our paramount chief at the time, and his name is Waun Sonakok, or something along those lines. And we presume that this baby's mother died in childbirth because we don't have any information about her. And this baby girl was named Amanuet. I've heard it said a couple different ways, and I'm probably going to say it a couple different ways, but... Amanuet quickly became her father's favorite daughter. Children of chiefs were held to a particularly high standard for learning to be beneficial members of their community. All children were taught weaving, crafting, planting, hunting, etc. from a really young age, which was probably partially just childcare. Like, hey, come on, I gotta be in the field, you gotta be in the field. Right. (laughs) 
but the chief's children were kind of supposed to be examples for the other kids. And so this little kind girl- of like when you're the priest's daughter. Right. Or the pastor's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to also commend you uh, for choosing this story right around Thanksgiving. And not only Thanksgiving, but on Friday the 27th, which if you're listening to this on Tuesday, which you would have to be, <laughs> is Native American Heritage Day. Yes, exactly. I was thinking ahead. Yeah, you were. Ooh. Uh, All right, Amanuit was an adventurous little girl who liked to climb trees and make mischief and would spin cartwheels through her village. She was just a rambunctious, some would probably say a little naughty, mischievous (laughs) young lady. And because of this, she was given the nickname Pocahontas. Interesting. Which translates to something along the lines of the playful one. Is this your fun reveal? This is my fun reveal. We're talking about Pocahontas today. I love it. Yeah. I just wanted to set it up in a little, you know, I think people have preconceived notions about who Pocahontas is and kind of want to turn that on its head a little bit. Love it. Amanuit, or Pocahontas, was about 10 years old in 1607 when a long and arduous ship journey ends and British colonizers found Jamestown. On this ship is John Smith, who was called quote, the president of Virginia and the admiral of New England. He's the point of the pyramid of power. He's the point of something. We're going to talk well, a lot about... the Virginian. Yeah. Like... We're going to talk about John, Mr. Okay. Mr. John Smith over here. Mr. John Smith would later go on to publish a book recounting all of his adventures in the New World, which historians pretty much consider to be entirely made up bullshit. Oh, so fiction. This dude was essentially writing his own fan fiction and is basically Gilderoy Lockhart of colonizers. (laughs) He was just like, and then this happened and my hair was blowing in the wind. And it's just like, okay, buddy, like, how about you chill out? Tone it down. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's take it back to reality here. Like in the book, when he tells this tale of being abducted by a werewolf and being taken through all 32 of the villages before being taken to Waun Sonakok to be executed, when a beautiful young woman named Pocahontas emerged and told her father that if he was going to kill John, then he should kill her too. But none of this actually happened for a couple different reasons. <laughs> Disney. Okay. Let's hear it. How'd it go down? So firstly, Pocahontas was about nine or ten when they got there, and this is said to have happened. What was the age of marriage in her village? About 15 is when people would come of age. So she's still a little girl by all accounts. she's still a child by all means. Secondly, children were never involved or even allowed in these types of hearings, much less at an execution. So there would have been like guards who were probably like her uncles essentially at the gate like sorry kid you're so not getting in there and she's like but my dad's in there and they're like that's cute I It'll be- watch an execution yeah. and they're like no yeah so there's no way that Go eat some baskets. any of that could have happened right yeah and so basically john smith wrote that story that way to show the savagery of the indigenous people but also that there were some good ones like pocahontas who tried to spare his life And so it's basically just driving home this British narrative of what Indigenous people were like. Gotcha. Which is just not a good move. Anyway, in 1608, 
about a year after the colonizers had showed up, things get real rough. So as we've mentioned before, the winters in this area are not kind. And the colonizers really were not prepared for how bad winter could get. By this point, they were running out of their supplies. They hadn't quite gotten farming and animal husbandry figured out all the way. They're starting to freeze to death and and die of hunger. So what do we think they decide to do? Instead of form a trade deal or, you know, something diplomatic, John Smith orders his men to go and attack the Powhatan people and steal whatever they could, instructing them to light their homes on fire to get the point across if they had to. Oh man, John Smith is a dick. Uh Uh-huh. And the colonizers were not prepared for the force of the Powhatan people, who remember are 25,000 strong. Right, and also have a very established land and right. hunting and, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. And so the Powhatan people basically go like, uh-huh, yeah, that's that's cute. And they just killed or took people prisoner. They're like, sorry, you're not going to burn my house down right now. Like, I've been here for thousands of years. Good try. And John Simmer Smith- down. Yeah. And John Smith goes, oops, um, yeah. well, uh, do you think maybe you could not uh, kill everyone? Sorry. Wa'un Sonakak is merciful. And he's like, all right, we can figure something out. Pocahontas never had to step in. She's still a kid. Right. She's weaving baskets, causing trouble, having a good time. Yep. I know that we're discounting the Disney version here, but Mm -hmm. can we pretend that she's hanging out with a little raccoon? Sure. Just for funsies? Sure. Maybe she hung out with some animals of some sort. Maybe. And maybe the cute, um, Flit is the hummingbird. Yeah, I, I liked Miko. I actually Miko and, a, yeah. a kitty after Miko a long time ago. Yeah, Miko no, I was mischievous and fun. And I'm, so you could have named Miko Pocahontas if if they were mischievous. I could have, Ooh. you know. So I guess what we're saying is John Smith's a dick, but yeah. Miko was pretty cool. Animal friends are always awesome. Is yeah. the takeaway? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, John Smith's people are kind of let go and they're like, all right, let's figure something out. And they do work out a trade agreement and the Powhatan people exchange supplies and food. And he's like, so wasn't that easier than like trying to set my house on fire? You numbskull (laughs) asshole. And John Smith kind of- What did we learn? (laughs) Leaves with his tail between his legs. He's like, sorry, sir. I'm going to write it differently when I get back to Europe. Exactly. And that's where it becomes fan fiction. Right. (laughs) For himself. So while this uh, trade agreement is happening- John Smith sees Amanuet playing and being this goofy little girl and notices that she is her father's favorite. And he goes, hmm, we'll file that away for later. Uh, yep. I'm getting ugh vibes uh-huh. from him. Oh, it's not, it's not done yet. And he's not even the ugh-iest. I believe he's not even the ugh-iest, but ugh. he has a good amount of ugh already. Mm-hmm. So Amanuet was given the name Matawaka, as she grew up, so kind of something that could happen in some indigenous tribes or practices where that, like, you were given a birth name and then, like, a name as you came of age. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and so this happened, like I said, when she was about 14 or 15, but she still liked the nickname Pocahontas. Like, that was still something that she was called. She identified with, right? Yeah, absolutely. I did that. When I turned older, I changed my name, not legally, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I took my stage name and I thought it was really cool because it was almost like an end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. What a cool custom. Yeah, I'm down with it. So about 14, 15 years old, Matoaka, also known as Pocahontas, also known as Amanuit, marries Kokum, who is... Kokum. Yeah. I remember him. Who is the brother of Japsa, a werewolf 
for one of the other tribes in the Powhatan community. So what was what was his position, Coquan? Uh, the brother of one of the um, werewinces. So like the, the brother of so the, like, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So he lives comfortably, but doesn't have yeah. quite all the responsibilities. He gets to have fun and- He's the Harry yeah. to the William. Oh yeah. Who doesn't want to be the Harry, honestly? Yeah, the Harry's better. Yeah. So she moves to his village, which just so happens to be closer to the colony of Jamestown. So we're moving even closer to- We're getting closer to the, yep. the douchebag, right? Yep. Yep. And this news spreads so quickly that even the colonizers find out because they're starting to intermingle more and everyone kind of talks to everyone now that they've figured out trading and don't just burn each other's houses down. Language barriers and all that. Right. They're starting to work things out a little bit at this point. It's been five or six years. They're getting established. Hey friend, remember the time I tried to steal from your village and burn your houses down? (laughs) Good talk. Good memories. Corn for a blanket? Love it. Yep. Yeah. The colonizers find out that Matoaka has moved closer to them and John Smith comes in with his little mustache twirl and he's like, well, 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 how about that? Favorite girl's even closer now. Hmm? <laughs> Please do that voice for him this entire episode. Glad we had a laugh because here's where things go especially bad. All right. They're a little established now. They're feeling good about themselves. They're like, yeah, that first winter was rough. Figured some things out. It's been five or six years. We're Gucci. They're getting cocky. Yeah. Yeah, Yep. So in Powhatan culture, people spent the summers pretty much naked to battle the heat. And children typically didn't wear any clothing at all until they got older towards their coming of age time in their life. And this sounds like that would be a hard winter. Well, they would wear like skins and stuff in the winter, but when it was hot, because, you know, they're working the fields and it's muggy and humid and... Nakey time. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And this wasn't seen as sexual or explicit in any way because... Seemed as necessary. Well, and also their bodies weren't sexualized. Imagine that. Bodies are bodies. Wow. Whoa. Crazy, right? Right. Nipples can just be nipples. Who'd have thought? But of course, as we know, European society viewed things very differently and the colonizers' eyes bugged out of their heads and they were scandalized at seeing these nude native bodies. Many of the colonizers still didn't see natives as people. But and we also have the classic, well, what was she wearing argument. And so it isn't surprising to hear that many women and girls were taken and raped or otherwise assaulted by the men of the colony. <sighs> Yeah. And always, always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that rape was one of the biggest crimes a person could commit in Powhatan society. Good. It was pretty much like they're much more civilized than the Europeans are at this point. Yep. And it was pretty much an instant death sentence. They did not believe that these people could be rehabilitated. They did not believe these people were worth a second chance. If you raped someone, that was the end. Mm -hmm. And so it just it was pretty unheard of because of how serious that offense was taken. Of exactly. Course. And so when these white dudes just show up and start stealing and assaulting women and girls, it was essentially seen as a declaration of war. I could see why. Because Good all of them, those, though. all of those men really? had just basically done something that was a death sentence. And so Pocahontas is now 16 years old and she's expecting her and Kokum's first child. They're excited to start their family as most new parents, even though it's in the midst of this brewing war. Meanwhile, in Jamestown, mustache-twirling John Smith is devising a plan. Let's hear his voice. He doesn't say anything right now. He's just oh, like, okay. hmm, let's get ready for something. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the colony's getting pretty wrecked at this point. Again, cool, you've been here five years, we've been here for thousands. 
Right, absolutely. You saw how well that worked for you last time, and now you're assaulting our women, so... Don't start no shit, won't be no shit. Exactly. That's kind of the motto here. Or or if you prefer less cursing, do unto others. <laughs> as you would have them do unto you. I like it. And so the colony is getting pretty wrecked because of the nature of these crimes. It feels really personal. So it's more than just like, mm, you stole some stuff from me and tried well, to burn my house more down. Well, of course. Yeah. But it's, it's very much more like a, an act of, I will get you back. It's not just like, oh, we're going to, you know, mess with your crops or burn your houses down. It's like, no, we want to atone for what you personally did. And so things are getting pretty bad. So here's where John Smith steps in and he's like, I have a plan. (laughs) And he decides that the colonists should just capture Matoaka and use her as a bargaining chip to get her father to stop the war. Oh, what a dick. Uh Uh-huh. Yep, so here we've she's got... she's pregnant! Well, yeah, so here we've got Pocahontas, who's just given birth to their baby, okay. like, days ago. Oh, and fresh she, baby. And she is staying with the women of her tribe, away from her husband, which was the common practice. Which, honestly, all four. Like, yeah. if I'm gonna pop out a baby, let's learn the breastfeeding and take yeah. care of everything that's going on with your own body and some privacy with women who have been through it and are supportive. Yep, yeah, and so all that's... For that very much the custom that was being practiced. So you thought John Smith was a mustache twirler. Now it's time to meet his henchmen. Is he going to be, are they beard scratchers? He probably is a beard scratcher, given that we're in this colonial time frame anyways. He probably had one of those pointy, horrible mm. beards. Yeah. I've got a pointy, horrible beard. And that is the voice of Captain Samuel Argyll, who sneaks, I have to imagine, on tippy toes with like little hooked hands. <gasps> so captain samuel argyle sneaks into the village where pocahontas is recuperating from literally giving birth a couple days ago and kidnaps her and takes her back to his ship amidst her screams and horror and in his book john smith is like she was screaming because she'd never seen such advanced technology like our boat before not because she was being kidnapped and dragged away from her home everyone she knew and her like three-day-old baby she was screaming uh mm-hmm. oh my god okay all right. yep and because just kidnapping her isn't enough right. they lock her in a jail cell in the bottom of the ship <sighs> Of course they would. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in his book, John Smith argues that, well, they only had to do this because the Powhatan people had stolen all their guns and supplies. And so she was a bargaining chip to try and restore peace and not, you know, because they raped a bunch of people. What a, incon- what a like, a very convenient thing mm-hmm. for him to have left out of all of this. Right. Oh, and by the way, we did the highest crime possible, but they stole our guns, I guess. Which we kept trying to use. Against them. Against them. Yep. So. All right. And so. I kind of feel like their civilization is like, yeah, like, I feel like the Europeans are almost toddlers with sticks and rocks and. Yeah. And they're like, maybe you shouldn't be playing with that. Let's take that away from you. Maybe you sit there and think about what you've done. Let's Mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's the type of ideologies that founded America. And Except I feel like evil toddlers, like we Chucky. still see those echoes today as we've had a toddler for president for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, where am I? That's kind of what we know from John Smith's book, which we all agree is false, but it kind of helps us put together maybe a timeline, kind of. 
But according to the Powhatan people's oral histories, this is what we know happens next. So Kokum finds out what's happened to his wife and, you know, the mother of his brand new infant baby. His three-day-old little baby, yes. I don't know that's exactly three days old, but like... We're she just going to say so then. still recuperating, so... Right. It's fresh. And obviously, this is not something he's a fan of. And so he takes a horse and he rides into Jamestown killing colonizers with arrows as he goes like a bad son of a bitch give me my wife back and he's just this total badass with it he gets to captain argyle's ship where he knows that his wife is being held against her will and unfortunately that's where he is gunned down (gasps) no he makes this valiant heroic shooting people on horseback let's go and he makes it all the way to the ship and that's where his life ends tragically Uh, Mm -hmm. can we have a moment of silence for kokom literally yeah okay yeah so john smith recorded that they held matawaka while waiting for her father to pay them and they received partial payment And then John Smith wrote back to let her father know that, quote, his daughter should be well used, but that we could not believe the rest of our arms were either lost or stolen, and therefore, until he sent them, we would keep his daughter. But the thing is that these weapons couldn't be returned because they were never stolen in the first place. Okay, so what was the trade asking for? Basically, John Smith says, give us our guns, we'll give you your daughter back. Gotcha. But they never stole guns. The the. The violence started because the colonizers raped a bunch of people. Right. And so the Powhatan people were like, um, you can't do that. We going to come have a war. And then their response was to kidnap Matawaka. And then they said, um, if you want her back, you have to give us back the guns you stole, which they didn't steal. And they're, they're like, what guns? What are you talking right. about? Yeah. And this so is, there's this, this unrealistic. Is this is a rigged system. Yeah. Where are we going to get guns? We didn't take any. We don't have them. Yep. Exactly. Pocahontas at this point goes on a hunger strike. She is bereft. She is still physically recovering. She is terrified and probably knows that her husband just got murdered. And so, yeah, she decides she's not going to eat. I mean, and think about how terrible that is. Mm -hmm. Her husband's been murdered. She's been separated from her child. She's probably worried because her Mm -hmm. breast milk is starting to dry up at this point. Yeah, it's, it's all bad. She's still recovering from the pain of giving birth. Exactly. So the colonizers know that they have to keep her alive because she's only a bargaining chip as long as she's got breath in her lungs. And uh, so they're like, they all right. No, they let her see her okay. sister. Okay. So she gets to have a talk with one of her sisters um, who they allow to come aboard the ship. During their visit, Matawaka told her sister that she was being raped regularly by the crew on the ship <gasps> and begged them to let her go home. No. Yep. And so obviously her sister goes back to her dad and is like, hey, they're committing the worst crime against her um, in addition to everything else they've already done. For those of you who don't know, the recovery after a woman has had birth is what, three months? Something along those lines. Yeah, yeah about three months. In modern science, wait. when there's yeah. ibuprofen and Tylenol. and, and Right. Yeah. You're supposed to wait to have sex mm-hmm. for a about three months before you and that's enjoyable comfortable consensual sex not the violence that's happening aboard this ship oh my god poor woman okay 
Yep. So this gets back to her father, and he is justifiably even more pissed than he's ever been. And he decides that he's not even going to try and stop the war. He's going to just burn it to the ground, smash it down. He's coming for his kid. Good. And so... At this point, highly support that. Yeah. And so the war lasts from 1610 to 1614. But because of the two different, you know, the oral traditions of the Powhatan people and also this fucking fan fiction that John Smith has written, we're not really sure if she was kidnapped at the beginning or if it was towards the end. No one really knows how that timeline shook out because John Smith says Matawak was only aboard the ship for about three months, but... Mm -hmm. Depending on the math, it seems like it was at least a year that she was held in this jail cell. Oh my gosh. Okay. And it's actually, correction, four to six weeks after delivery. So about a month. Okay. Yeah. A month and a half. Okay. I just want to verify that. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I would take three months. (laughs) Hear that? Be stung, Matt Damon. We're taking, we're taking three months. (laughs) So during this time, due to the multiple assaults, Matuaka gets pregnant as a result. Which if she was held for a year. Yep. Yeah, very likely. And so this kind of throws the bargaining power out of whack, because if the people found out, they would be even more upset because now there's concrete evidence that these people are committing the worst possible crime against her. Like before it was hearsay. And of course, now it's confirmed, but there's no way that it's not. And so they start to make a plan to cover up their crimes. Are they going to try to make her have a stillbirth or miscarriage? So this is where our new arch nemesis villain enters the picture oh there are so many at this i know okay (laughs) i know enter john rolf tobacco farmer so because of his farming john rolf is able to help the colonists turn a corner and actually start profiting from the colony which gives them a little bit more power because remember they were like not doing right. so they, hot at first they had no legs to stand on at first yep. absolutely and so he's this kind of wealthy mogul sort of fella and he's also a 40 something widower and he's captain samuel argyle's buddy are they gonna forcefully marry her to him so one night him and argyle are talking and argyle's like huh, you got a problem chick's pregnant doesn't look good for us with her pops and rolf's probably like shit it's not mine right because he was pretty we're pretty sure he was one of the people who was constantly assaulting her on a regular basis right and so argyle's like gotta do something with her and rolf decides generously that he'll marry her i i I mean i saw it coming Uh but also you don't want to hear it no like knowing it's coming and and being confronted with it are two different levels of horror Yeah. at the same time i'm so glad they didn't decide to deal with it by trying to cause her to miscarry or have a stillbirth or inflict any kind of physical but i can't even imagine from a mental standpoint what that would be like being forced to marry one of your rapists yep exactly so he's gonna marry her but there's only one problem she's widowed from cocoon no she's a savage who doesn't have a soul so he can't, oh so, what a dick he luckily like, oh, you don't have a soul but we've been keeping you and raping you for about a year but luckily they can fix this and she can obtain a soul when she, she converts to christianity of course okay and so they're able to kind of loophole that system so she's forced to go through this conversion and i guess that grants her a human soul so matuaka is baptized in the anglican church and given the english name rebecca so now that she's been forced into christianity she can be forced into her, a marriage and she gets her fourth name mm-hmm. 
this is when Amanuet, Pocahontas, Matoaka becomes Rebecca Roll. Rebecca. So according to colonists, Rebecca, as they're calling her, who we really know is Matoaka, fell in love with John Rolfe. And so she And that is how she found Christianity because she wanted to be saved so that they could live together in eternity. Not that she was a 16-year-old widow who hadn't seen her child since birth and was forced to marry a 40-something-year-old dude who was one of her rapists and the buddy of the guys who murdered her husband because that's just not quite as happy of a tale. Uh-huh. Man. Yep. The, the fan fiction just continues, really. So it's because of this narrative getting out that her father had to accept that she was happy and so a peace treaty was negotiated this is known as the peace of pocahontas haven't they taken enough pieces of her already fact but yeah so basically they're like well see she's happily married bye and yeah so despite the peace treaty pocahontas is never allowed to see her family or her baby ever again no (sighs) she's taken by her new husband, John Rolfe, to England, where their story is pimped out as an example of hope and true love and that anything can happen in the new world and these, quote, savage people can be transformed into something decent and human. I am so appalled right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know we have an auditory platform and I'm trying to react for you, but at, the, but at the same time, it's dumbfounding. It is. It's it actually is. dumbfounding that these people claim that she didn't have a soul when they're raping her daily. Right. Holding her against her will, ripped her away from her newborn, and then they take her to the new world and they're like, see, she has a soul now. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so when asked in an interview if he truly loved his wife, get ready to be just fucking disgusted. I'm already fucking disgusted. I don't know how he can get more disgusted, but let's see. Drop it on me. Yep. So in this interview, John Rolfe responded that if he were really the type of guy to take advantage of a teenager, he'd have chosen a white girl who is, quote, more pleasing to the eye. So this is the type of dude we're dealing with. Although, to be fair, maybe he could be president since the answer to, are you a rapist, isn't no. It's if I were a rapist, wouldn't I just rape prettier girls? Right, like, the misogyny wasn't bad enough. Let's throw in some blatant racism. Like, to answer that question, fuck you, dude. Yeah, that's a, that's a double fuck you for me. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. Uh, so John- there's probably going to be a lot of cursing in this episode. <laughs> Sorry, I just realized there's a pun for my story. <laughs> I've been- like Actual cursing. Like, just screaming in my- I, I went through about, like- three quarters of a pot of coffee today doing my research just like angrily drinking coffee out of my Leslie note mug and just like ah I hate this so yeah all right John Rolfe and Pocahontas became a very famous love story and like I said was was used to show that the British people that the people in the new world could be shown the light and they could marry good white folks and adapt to Christianity and that, you know, maybe not all hope is lost, basically. And so basically, keep sending your money to the new world. This is a worthwhile investment because look at how happy John and <laughs> Rebecca are. <sighs> the lie was so easily devoured that it became a selling point and souvenirs were painted with the portraits of John and Pocahontas. And this is actually where our Disney story is adapted from. They just decided to just marry a bunch of John Smith together or john, oh yeah. yeah european johns together well and like john smith is the most nondescript name like that's the right that's basically john doe 
pretty much. <laughs> yeah. All right. The baby that Pocahontas fell pregnant with on the ship was named Thomas Rolfe, and John took full responsibility for him, even going as far as to sign his name on the child's birth certificate. Well, I mean, at this point, he kind of has to to keep the whole thing going. Right. The illusion going. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. But do file away that legal document for later. Filed in my brain cavities. No, wait, cabinets. (laughs) Not my brain cavities. You need to go to a head dentist. (laughs) Pocahontas, or Rebecca, became a household name and people all over wanted to meet her. She was invited to all sorts of fancy parties and had to adapt to British society. She was painted up to look white. Ugh, that's bad. And dressed in the fashions typical of the time. And she also actually became totally fluent in English. Well, I mean, she's been communicating with these people for quite a long time at this point. Yeah. Considering, you know, they were trading a little bit beforehand. Right. Okay. This is where it's amazing how resilient of a person she is. Uh Uh-huh. Because she now understands that she has power as a diplomat. So remember that this little girl was raised at the knee of the most powerful man in, in that whole community. That's her dad. And she Well, and she studied diplomacy. She would have had to have been yeah. his daughter, even just seeing it happen. Exactly. So she's grown up watching this actions. happen, seeing right. these intra-tribe relations happening, seeing how bargaining and trading and stuff worked. So she decides that she's going to be this diplomat who shows the British people how good her people actually were, not the, quote, savages they were rumored as and depicted to be. You go, girl. So she was kind and polite and called the, and we hate this, the Indian princess. Mm, Yeah. And she actually got to meet the king and queen of England. After meeting with her, their impressions of indigenous people was changed, and they actually did demand kinder relations um, and treatment of indigenous people by the colonizers. Good. We see how well that turned out, i.e. it did not. But because of Matuaka's character, she presented her case for being an actual fucking human so well that they're like, oh, hey, maybe we should be nice and decent. Oh, seems like they're they're not quite savages as much as uh, we've maybe been told. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rebecca seems fine. Mm-hmm. All right. So you remember John Smith? Of course. Yeah. So he shows up. I think up. we all do. He shows up at our house. He just stops by for tea. Like you do. Uh-huh. And by this point, because she can read, she knows about the book. So she can read, too. As far as I know, or someone has read this to her, but she okay. knows what happens in this book. I was going to say, because to be a woman that could read at that point in time, that's yeah. a whole nother level of So she's aware of what happens in the book. I, okay. I don't know if that's because she read it or if she had someone read it to her. Uh-huh. But she's not just like, hmm, wonder she's what John aware. said about me in this book. Well, I'm sure she's been questioned about it at every party she went to. Yeah. So somehow she knows. I may have spoken out of turn um, whether or not she could read, but (gasps) she knows that he's completely fictionalized their whole relationship. And she said that she was really surprised her father hadn't executed him. (laughs) I mean, in hindsight. She was like, I'm so surprised that you're here at my house right now when I'm really amazed that my dad didn't just like outright kill you for how horrible of a person you are, you lying scumbag. Good for her. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she calls him out for exploiting her, her community, and her entire people for his own gain and glory. Good. Yeah. Okay. 
But yeah. I'm sure he doesn't like that. No, he's probably not a big fan, but what else can he do? All right. As I mentioned, John Rolfe is known for the success of tobacco in the New World. And as such, he made frequent trips back and forth between the continents. So Pocahontas would beg him every time to let her come and, and see her see family, her family and go okay home. And exactly. But he always refused. Child. Of course he did, because he's a dick. Until. Oh, okay. She became proficient enough in English when she discovered that she had the bargaining power of her own words to tell the truth about what happened to her and the actual circumstances that got her to England to English people. So did she do it? She got to get on the ship. She was like, well, basically... We, we no, you've already told us that she's never going to see her family again. Right. So they're like, oh, oh, okay, yep. You're... If the ship sunk, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rage. I'm going to Zach Baggins rage all over this computer. Uh, rage, yeah. bro. Yeah. This, wait, the ship sunk? Oh, no, let me tell the story. Oh, hey, well, don't scare me like that. Anyways, so she's basically like, hey, I'll tell the truth about how our son came to be. And he's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You can, you can get on the ship, I guess. So in 1617, John allows her to go back for a visit in order to buy her silence. She would never make it as she contracted what was likely tuberculosis on the ship and died of the mysterious illness, though it could have also been poisoning because they realized she was a threat. Oh my God. She has the hope in her heart that she's going to get to finally see her whole family, her child. Oh, that's so sad. Uh-huh. Yep. After her death, they turned the ship around, and she is buried at St. George's Church in Gravesend. Despite being this wealthy tobacco entrepreneur and being of the high-class status to have an elaborate funeral and burial, and moreover because she's a Christian, so she has a soul, she was entitled to have this fabulous burial, but instead she was given a pauper's burial in an unmarked grave. I, I, I... I'm just trying not to cry right now. This one's really bad. Oh, oh my God. So Thomas was on the ship too, her son, okay. which she became pregnant with while she was imprisoned on the ship. Right. And he also gets the same illness. He recovers. Okay, he, he recovers. Um, and so since they hopped off the ship to go and dispose of Matuaka's body. Let's not even call it a burial. They fucking just poured her in the ground and called it a day. Right. <sighs> Which makes really me mad. wonder, and here's the thing for me, it makes me wonder if she was poisoned because honestly, in most cases where that would happen, they wouldn't turn around when someone has disease on a ship. They'd dump the body over and call it good. Mm-hmm. So, and it wouldn't interrupt the journey. For them well, to have turned the ship around, dumped her in a pauper's grave means... The other thing, though, is that they're going to get Were there. Were they ever headed there in the first place? Who knows? But there's a couple of, of thoughts I have. And one is, okay. I'm sure that being the the leader of this nation, mm-hmm. that her father probably asks about her every time that one of the biggest tradesmen comes in. He's like, hey, my, my girl's oh, still good? Absolutely. And so it wouldn't have looked good if her body was on the ship. Right. Um, uh, well... Well, shit, we dumped her overboard on the way. And then that would have led to, well, can we keep her? If, you know, they had still had the body. Like, so, I mean. Well, I doubt they would have sailed all the way with the body. I think yeah. they would have dumped her over. If anything. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of Very reasons. Easy. But yeah. it's, 
why go all the way back at that point? If you're just going to throw her out, right. why even go all the way back to land? Just toss her in the ocean. Yeah. <sighs> okay. I'm going to get really mad, but we're going to keep talking. Oh, there's more. So like I said, Thomas, their son, who's two is also sick. And John basically says, ew, I don't want you. Now that your mom's dead, you're my problem. And so he leaves him with this random ass dude named Sir Lewis Stuckley. He's just like, here. Thomas at that point. Two. He's two years old. Oh, he's two. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was full grown. Okay, he's two. Pocahontas died at about 21 years old. Oh, yeah. So young. Yeah. All of that happened by the time she was about 21. Okay, so she died around two. Yeah. He dumps him off. Yep, with this Sir Lewis Stuckley jackass. Eh, I don't know if he's a bad guy. But basically, he's just like, I don't want this kid. So Thomas recovers, but John didn't want anything to do with him. He's like, hey, can you take care of my kid? I have to go to the New World and do some shit. And he's like, okay, yeah, 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 fine. See, that kind of sits on the possibly was poisoned even more. Exactly. He just happened to recover and he's like, ah, shit, well. Mm. Well, because my thing too is like, if it was a less severe case, if it was poisoning... At two, in the 1600s, he's probably still breastfeeding, which means that he would be getting a lower dose of whatever's Double, in her system. Right. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. If it was secondhand. Yeah, that it wouldn't be as bad because yeah. it's being filtered by her body first. Good point. Very so, good So, I mean, that's where I think there is some some foul play. Could be. So, John gets back and Lewis Stuckley's like, um, bro, can you take your kid? And he's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want him ever again. Like, I don't have a kid, bye. And so, John's brother Henry finds out. Henry is maybe the, like, one redeeming white man in this entire story. Okay, all right. Let's hear what Henry does, because I, I, I need one redeeming person at yeah. this point. And so, he finds out that Thomas is just being cared for by this random stranger, and he took custody. He was like, that's Good. my nephew. Okay. No, yes. that's my nephew's not going to just, like, I'm here. I can take you. I'm sorry, your dad's a jack wagon, but, like, you will be my kid. So Henry's about uh-huh. a thousand times better of a dude than his brother because John is like, yeah, that's cool that you have this kid who's not my kid anymore because I decided I don't want him to be my kid. And Henry's mm-hmm. like, you're a tobacco mogul. Like, can we have some, like, money? I'm going to need some child support for this kid. kid. And so it turns out John would never give him the 1600s equivalent of child support. But it was so contentious that Henry literally had to sue his brother in court to get Thomas to be listed as his inherent, like on his inheritance. Uh huh. John had no other descendants. There was no one else. He just well, didn't want his fucking kid to have it. Well, and John, it's let's be honest, really good chance it's not his kid. So, oh, sure. But he can't legally say, "Oh, it's not mine," and admit that she was raped multiple times. And also, you know why he, he also can't do that? But he's a selfish butthole and doesn't want to pay child support for this child. But do you want to know why he loses this court case? Why? Because he signed the birth certificate. Yeah it comes back to that okay yes that's why i told you to put it in your brain cavity earlier yep it's because that right I there did. i put it deep in the brain cavity that right there is the difference between thomas rolf getting justice for his father's horrible atrocities and just being a scumbag wow and so about 18 years later at the age of 20 thomas inherits the entire tobacco empire upon john's death good and at this time he sails to virginia which is now being settled and is now Virginia. So he's also going back to 
his roots. Where his other people are, right. Yep. And he also, in addition to inheriting this empire, becomes the lieutenant of the Jamestown colony. So he's high up there. He's super high up there. Like on the pyramid of power, where would you, where, where would you put him? Uh, so typically my understanding is lieutenant is always the second in command. So it, it actually stems from, and I only know this because Darnell's in the okay. military and he's lieutenant. But lieutenant is basically like in lieu of, like that's why it's spelled the way it is. So in lieu of actual leadership. So like in, in most. So like the understudy. Yeah. So in most American states governments, it's I called a lieutenant governor. Yeah. So like that's the vice governor, like how we have a vice uh-huh. president. The vice governor, if you will, is the lieutenant governor. So he's basically the second in command of the entire Virginian colony. That's pretty high on the pyramid of power. Right. Yeah. Pyramid scheme of power. He's he's up there. All right. Yeah. Go Thomas. Does he ever get to see his grandfather? Well, let's just talk. Let's okay. just um, talk. So Thomas is is raised with stories of his mother. I'm not sure who's telling him. It's got to be his uncle because his dad's a fucking scumbag. Right. And now his uncle's turned against his dad and is probably like, hey, by the way, your dad's, we clearly know your dad's a scumbag. Yeah. But Thomas does know that he comes from this indigenous nobility and he knows that he's got family waiting for him. I don't know that he knows he has a sibling waiting for him, but he knows that that's where his mother's people are from. Uh Uh-huh. And so at this point, it's now been 25 years since all this shook out Uh due to wars that have since happened between colonizers and the indigenous people. There are now strict rules that prohibit interaction between the groups. Interesting. Okay. Thomas argues a case to the governor that he's like, hey, um, like my grandparents are here. Can I like go see my auntie, please? Yeah. He's never allowed to. No. I was really hoping he I got know. to at least. I know. Uh, I know. Uh, I know. He makes it that close. Oh my God. He's on the uh, same land, like a couple no. miles away. No. And he still never gets to. I see have him. so much hope for her family that they get to. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this to me talks a lot about how even still we have conversations of assimilation and of moving away from indigenous backgrounds and making people Americanized, which is to say making them white. And that this is to me one of the first cases of that is is seeing how blatantly Thomas Rolf is like, hey, I know my mom's family is like 10 miles away from me. Can I go see them? And being denied access to the whole other half of who he is as a person. That's terrible. Yeah. And so now that you're fired up about this, this is kind of why I wanted to tell this story. Uh-huh. Um, we're going to talk about how it doesn't end there. What? Uh, what? More? Uh, okay. So that is where the story of Pocahontas, Matawaka, um, Thomas Rolfe, all of, all of our buddies that we've been following along for this story, we're going to lay them to rest at this point, and we're going to zoom a little closer to home. So... Since I got you kind of all worked up on this, I thought it would be important to talk about what is still happening. Please do. Pocahontas' story is one of the first well-documented cases that we have in a long line of atrocities committed against Indigenous women across North America. Today, Indigenous women are victimized at a higher rate than any other racial group in the United States and Canada. Still. Still. 
In 2016, there were 5,712 reported incidences of Native women and girls going missing or being murdered. Only 116 of those would be logged into the Department of Justice database. Oh, that's terrible. According to the National Institute of Justice, four out of five Indigenous women will experience violence in their lifetimes. 96% of this violence is committed by non-Natives. Wow. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women, girls, trans, and two-spirit individuals. In 2013, in Canada, Indigenous women represented 4.3% of the population, but they accounted for 16% of murders in the country. Wow. Indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than any other race. That's horrific. So part of the reason for how we have kept records and where we're at with all of this is backs up to an inherent distrust of the police, especially in Canada, where the original police forces there operated for Indigenous people, much like the original police forces in the United States work for Black people. Police in both countries were tasked with returning runaway Indigenous people to schools where they were forced to assimilate, adopt Christianity, and reform into upstanding citizens. There is still a systemic anti-Indigenous ideology in much of the way that policing works in both countries. This year alone, there have been six murders of Indigenous people by police brutality in Canada in a stunning parallel to cases like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in the United States. It's absolutely appalling. Because of the systemic violence against Indigenous people, cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls are often not handled appropriately. This is even more exacerbated by the lack of cooperation between jurisdictions when reservations are involved, because reservations are federal land, Mm -hmm. so they have to automatically be handled by, like, the FBI, FBI. but that doesn't mean that they have jurisdiction to interview the surrounding cities. So when we have 96% of these crimes being handled or being committed by people who- They they don't have the legal resources to to actually do the work. That's terrible. Exactly. It's a loophole. It's a loophole. It's absolutely a loophole. Uh, There are some bright spots this year. The president did one good thing. And he signed into law Savannah's Act, which came after a horrible crime against a pregnant indigenous woman and her unborn baby. This act mandates that the Department of Justice must provide training to law enforcement on how crimes are recorded in federal databases implementing strategies to notify the public of missing persons, working with tribes to develop regionally appropriate responses to the cases of missing and murdered women, and report statistics on missing and murdered natives. Also being brought into effect is the Not Invisible Act, which mandates that the Department of the Interior, quote, designate an official within the Bureau of Indian Affairs to coordinate prevention efforts, grants, and programs related to missing Indians and the murder and human trafficking of Indians. Um, I don't think that's the right word that we should be using, but that is what is listed in the quote. Additionally, the Interior and the Justice Department must establish a joint commission that will develop recommendations on how to combat violence against Native peoples. So we feel pretty hopeless right now, but there are some things that you can do. There is a lot of fantastic activism that is happening right now. As I said, with the cases of police brutality against missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, we're seeing an uptick in in activism. Right now, the hashtag MMIW on TikTok is full of young activists 
uh, informing people about how to get involved. There are initiatives to donate to such organizations as It Starts With Us, which is a community-led uh, organization offering support to people and families touched by violence, as well as MMIWUSA. I will put links in our show notes um, where people can get involved and maybe think about donating in honor of the people who've been sacrificed and murdered and were on this land long before we stole it while you celebrate Thanksgiving. And especially for our Native American Heritage Day, which once again is Friday the 27th. Yeah. Rue, I would love it if you would also be so kind as to pass that information on to me or to post it on our social media. I think that's so important to be doing this time of year. Uh, I really want to cover more of these cases because unfortunately, like I said, there are so, so, so many of them and many of them are unsolved. And if we can use our platform to help gain traction, I I truly believe, you know, we've seen Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted solve crimes by people talking about it. Now we have these Reddit armchair investigators that, you know, if we have the ability to talk about these things, I feel like we have a responsibility to. Absolutely. So... But there you go. That is the story of Pocahontas, one of the first documented cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And if you're angry right now, which you should be, please consider donating and making a difference. Yep. So make us happy now, please, because I'm so sad. Hey, I'm Bryson from Tangent Avenue. And I'm Tasman. From from where? Uh I think I oh yeah, yeah, I got this. I know this one. Yeah. I know this one. It's uh a podcast. Uh it's called Tangent Avenue. And nope. I I think Wrong. we cover a topic every Wednesday. Does that does it sound right about so far? I don't like this. I think it's on Tuesdays. Uh, no, no, I'm pretty sure it's Wednesday. Wednesdays? Uh, Let me yeah. check my calendar. Let me check my calendar okay. one sec. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, oh, my bad. See, on my calendar, Wednesdays and Tuesdays are switched. So it goes Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That's, you, you might want to get your calendar checked, man. I think it's fine. Okay, all right. Yeah, uh, we cover a topic every single Wednesday, ranging from conspiracy theories to historical events to people of outstanding whatever. Uh, weird we... shit, really. Outstanding weird shit. Like Aleister yeah. Crowley. Aleister Crowley. L. Ron Hu- Hubbard? Hubert? Uh, Hubert. L. Ron Hubert the Hubbard. Yeah, I know uh, nothing about him. That's That's all you, man. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Um, I've also we also do some topics on like more weird topics, not necessarily about one person, but like how the events of Archduke Ferdinand's death uh, ended up creating hentai. Yeah, we do a lot of weird, cool, fun stuff, uh, and we just have a lot of fun. We bicker like an old married couple throughout the about. No, we don't. Sorry, sorry. Uh, we hope we hope you join us. Uh, it's it's a fun ride. Uh, we we have a lot of fun. And we hope you will too. Uh, yeah, Taz hopes you have a lot of fun. <laughs> Alrighty, let's take a drive down Tangent Avenue.
So as promised, I'm going to talk about cursed stones today, including the Hope Diamond, which is, I think, the most iconic cursed stone, wouldn't you say? probably. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you the choice. Do I start with the Hope Diamond or do I end with the Hope Diamond? Oh, you end with it. That is our, like, coup de gras, like, final... Fanciful stone, right? Yeah, it's our finisher move if this was Mortal Kombat gem edition. I... I would love if it was Mortal Kombat Gen Edition. So one disclaimer before I start the story. Okay. And that is, I don't know Roman numerals. I never really learned them. I will Even though I'm you. a history buff. I have actually a Google page pulled up with Roman numerals. Okay. Because I will need to refer to them very often during well, this. you all tolerated my Waun Sonakok pronunciation. So I think we can give you a little grace for not knowing what the IV versus the VI means. Okay. Well, IVV. Oh, shoot. That one's not on my list. I hope that doesn't pop up. <laughs> well, that's because IVV I don't think is a thing. Oh, well, then why did you stump me with that one? When I said okay. IV versus VI, which is four versus six. VI is six. Yeah. IV is four. Yes. There you go. See, I know I've got a fancy little thing here. Boom. All right, let's Boom. do it. Let's get into some Roman numeral oh. scary gems. Oh, my goodness. Cat attacks I, things. He just jumped up and he presented me with this lovely. Okay. So it's a bracelet thing. And it. No. It's Little Face's old collar. Oh, okay. It's made of like fake pearls and diamonds and a little silver bell. But it feels really apropos that you're being presented with that as you're about to talk about these cursed items. Look, he's become a little jewel thief like Little Face. He goes in and he steals jewelry and he brings it back to me. And part of me is like, that's kind of (laughs) cool. But of course, all the stuff he gets, he usually acquires from Christy or from me. And somehow Artie's over there playing with a medicine dispenser for the (laughs) other cat that I don't know how he got out of the bag. So it's just chaos. (laughs) Chaos. Cats and chaos, the the, uh, tagline to our podcast. All right. The first one we're going to talk about is the Koh-i-Noor diamond. And this one carries a very interesting curse because it's one that seems to only pertain to men. Oh, Okay. Pretty soon we're going to learn about the Hope Diamond at the end of this, Mm -hmm. but much like it, it is 105.6 carats, and it was believed to have been extracted from the Kolur mine in Glokanda, India. Okay. And once again, there's a lot of pronunciation here. Yeah. Its name in Persian means the Mountain of Light. Okay. Can you give us, like, for people who are not gem experts such as myself what does that mean carrots in like how big in my hand would it be um big okay (laughs) okay so uh, oh i don't let me why you gotta ask that because i'm so stupid like i got my engagement ring and i was like thank you is this a million carrots and darnell was like oh no i can't afford a million carrots and i was like you could have just said yes and i would tell everyone it was a million carrots because i don't speak diamond at all i still like you say carrot i think bugs bunny i don't feel like that's a way to measure okay so i'm going to kind of give you a a little bit of a guide okay but you're going to have to give me a second to find That's fine. I'm what asking hard questions. It's like a 60 minutes interview. Well, I just assume most people know what like one <laughs> carrot looks like. I really don't. What? You really don't? Uh, okay. <clears throat> I'm not a big jewelry person. So one carrot is about 
6.5 millimeters. Okay. 6.25 millimeters. Right on. Okay, I can kind of see that. And if we were looking about at something almost four carats, that'd be mm -hmm. about 10 millimeters, which would okay. be about the size of a, I don't know, ring fingernail. Maybe. Yeah, I was going to say we're, we're in like fingernail category right now. Yeah, okay. and that's that's about about three and a half, four. Okay, I'm going to have to free a cat from its head being stuck in a bag. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my God, I'm going to kick them all out, I promise. So a mm. hundred carats is pretty giant. hundred carats is massive. Okay, like probably we're entering golf ball size. Would that be a fair assumption? I don't know, Brew. I'm terrible at math. Why are you asking? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. Sorry. All right. I haven't even gotten through part of my story. I'm sorry. Everybody else knows what that would mean. <laughs> I don't think that our demographic would, honestly. I do. You have uh, more hope in their bouginess than I do. Okay. So, and it's hard to tell because all the pictures they have of the Koinor diamond that I'm seeing, hmm. it doesn't really have anything for reference. Gotcha. So let me see if I can find specifically for you what they equated to. Okay. Before I'm allowed to finish my four hour long story. I'm that... sorry, I have questions. I'm just giving you crap. Okay. Oh, okay. shit. It's big. It's big. Yeah, it's, it's big. Oh, okay. So uh, the pictures that I'm seeing are of them on people's like ring fingers and they cover up your pinky and middle finger essentially is what i'm seeing so then everyone has different sizes for, for the koei nora diamond no You're i just seeing... looked up hundred carat gem okay and they're they're giant so okay anyone who's not a gem enthusiast like myself now you understand what caliber we're working with okay i you were going to hear this in the story, but if it's going to help you until they figure out the size of the dang thing, it's the center stone in Queen Elizabeth's coronation crown. Okay, that does help. No, it's right big. It's giant. All right, continue. Okay, don't, please don't make me do that with all of them. There are so many. And uh, how big is 79.4 carats exactly? You freaking go to a jewelry store and you tell me. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> back to where I was. See, now you made me lose my place and everything. So the first mention of it kind of pops up in these memoirs of Zaharudian Muhammad Babur, who was a founder of the Magal Empire in India. He wrote in his memoirs that the diamond was stolen from the Raja of Malwaha in 1306. And that when it was originally procured, it was about 739 carats in its original uncut form. Dang, okay. Which is... A lot. Yeah. You saw the, what the 100 carat one looks right, like. Right, yeah. So throughout history, this gem trades hands a bunch. And it's mostly among various Hindu, Mongolian, Persian, Afghan, and Sikh rulers who fought these terrible wars to own it. Dang, okay. According to folklore, a Hindu description of the Kohinoor warns that it's so cool. Quote, he who owns the diamond will own the world but will also know all of its misfortunes. Only a god or a woman can wear it with impunity. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there have been all sorts of historical records that indicate that the diamond was then kind of acquired by the British in 1849 and given to Queen Victoria in around 1850. To heed its legend, the diamond has since only been worn by women of the royal family, including... 
Queen Alexander of Denmark, Queen Mary Tech, and the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, wife of King George the Sixth. Hmm. I'm going to verify the sixth real quick. The sixth. And currently it's set as one of the jewels within the British monarchy crown that is kept in the Tower of London Jewel House. So oh, if you cool. want to see the Koh-i-Noor jewelry, uh, the Koh-i-Noor diamond, you can actually yeah. go and do that at the Tower of London. That's cool. That's where the uh, crown jewels are as well. Yes. Yep. So there have been so many fights to possess the Koh-i-Noor and it's incredibly ongoing. India has been unsuccessful at lobbying to get the diamond back for years, while the British government maintains that at this point it owns the gym fair and square, considering it was procured, even according to the British Prime Minister. Hmm. Amazing how our stories have in common British people, i.e. white people, just taking what they want and deciding it's theirs. Trust me, that happens a lot. Oh, I don't Um, doubt it. (laughs) That is all of history. That is pretty much all of history. Yep. So there's a, I don't know if it's Hindu or if it's an Indian belief, but in India, they don't like to cut or back when a lot of these gems were first mined, it was believed that to cut a gem was to kind of bring about negativity. Hmm. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But the next one I want to talk about is the Black Prince Ruby, which technically isn't really a ruby at all. It's a large spadel which is a hard glassy mineral that kind of crystallizes into different various shapes gotcha. and, and colors, including kind of a fiery red. Spinels are also worth significantly less than rubies. So this ruby is also known as the great imposter. Oh, because it's not really a ruby, but it looks it's like a ruby. It's not really a ruby, but it looks like a ruby. And we're going to have a couple of those where they call it like a sapphire and it's right. really not a sapphire, but what can you do, I guess? Spinels are a form of currency in Resident Evil 4. You can trade them for money and buy gun upgrades and such. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't really like put together them in the real world, but I was like, oh, I know spinels. They're worth approximately this much money that I can buy guns with. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so you couldn't tell me how big one carat diamond is, but you can tell me about spinels. Oh my gosh. Leon S. Kennedy <laughs> doesn't ever talk about the, the carat amount of these spinels. Like, hey, merchant dude who I met in this creepy mine shaft, can I buy a gun? He's like, how many spinels you got, stranger? So this one's believed to be mined from Badaskashan? I believe, which is present-day Tajikistan. It's first recorded during the 14th century. It was plundered from the Moorish kingdom of Granada by Don Pedro the Cruel. Hmm. He was the ruler of Seville, Spain, and a lot of this information that I'm getting from originally comes from a book called Fire and Blood, Rubies, Myth, Magic, and History. So then the spinel is then kind of transferred hands and ends up with Edward of Woodstock, who was called the Black Prince. Hmm. It's where it gets its name. Right. He was called the Black Prince because of his success on the battlefield during the Hundreds World War. And in 1415, King Henry V, what's the V? Five. King Henry V. There you go. Attained the spinel and had it set in his battle helmet alongside real rubies. He then wore the helmet when he defeated French forces at the Battle of Agincourt. Okay. Okay. So Jim has passed along to British royalty. Amazing how they end up with so many of these things, including Henry VIII. Six, seven, eighth. Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth I until King Charles I was beheaded for treason in 1649 and then the stone was sold. So Charles II buys the stone back from who knows who. Mm-hmm. 
but it's nearly lost again when the infamous Irish Colonel Thomas Blood attempts to steal the crown jewels of England from the Tower of London in 1671. They still do reenactments at the Tower of London of this amazing theft. I highly recommend if anyone's down there uh, around the time they do that to check it out. So the Black Prince's Ruby, the spinel, is set dead center right now of the front of the Imperial State Crown of England. Hmm. Now I'm going to do the Delhi Purple Sapphire. Can I guess that it's not really a sapphire? You can, because I already said that. Okay, I was wondering if that was the one, because I know you're covering a couple. I was like, ooh, is this the one that's also a phony? It's actually amethyst. Okay. (laughs) So this stone is rumored to have been stolen by a British soldier from the Temple of India, the Hindu god of war and wealth in Kapur, India, during the Indian ministry of 1857. So in India, they'd have some some shrines and different statues that would be jewel encrusted Mm -hmm. and it's believed that a lot of these stones came from those and were were taken from from statues of deities wonderful yeah the hope diamond has a bit of a history like that though it cannot be proven okay um back then our records once again are not that great yeah there was a lot of trading done and india was actually one of the only places if not the only place during some of these times that Mm -hmm. diamonds were located so india traded a lot of diamonds and the records are not very great right plus once british and europeans get a hold of them they tend to Mm -hmm. cut them down so that they can't really be identified to the stones that they got from india yeah so uh, records are meh but for some reason these stories still exist which i'm not saying it didn't happen it probably did happen but i don't know that it happened as much as we're led to believe right so during the indian mutiny of 1857 It's brought to England by Colonel W. Ferris, whose family then supposedly suffered many financial and health woes. It's then given to a man named Edward Huron Allen, who I believe was a writer and a scientist. And around 1890, he claimed to start having really bad luck immediately after receiving it. He gives it away to friends who are also struck with immediate misfortune and quickly return the gift back to him. Yeah, no, thank you. Hey, uh, here's this present. It's going to ruin your life. Anyways, Merry Christmas. <laughs> like, no, thank you. So he warns that the Delhi purple sapphire is, quote, accursed and is stained with the blood and dishonor of everyone who has ever owned it. Oh, okay. But of course, they're like, hey, free stone. So they take it, but they return it back to him <laughs> <laughs> soon after. So he keeps it locked away in seven boxes surrounded by good luck charms. Okay. That feels like a kill, my friend. I don't know. He's pretty dead set on this is cursed. And after his death, his daughter decides to then donate the amethyst, referred to as the sapphire, Mm. to London's Natural History Museum in 1943, in which it stays today. But with the stone, she gives them a personal letter that her father wrote caution future owners against directly handling it at all oh the mysterious stone is now permanently on display as part of the natural histories museum's bolt collection of precious gemstones i saw an amazing little segment of this a while back on some show i'm sorry i wish i could tell you what it was but they pulled out the handwritten letter and they're like yeah it basically just showed up in the mail with this shoved in it like nobody wanted to touch it that's i would i feel so bad for the mail carriers that are just like putting it in the right slot and they're like oops why why am i having so much bad luck uh the hope diamond actually claimed a life of a male character oh wow supposedly i didn't realize i was spoiler alerting us 
Oh, there was also something really fun I wanted to tell you about that one. Uh, it, it's been worn as a medal in in kind of a, a medal form for different battles and things. People kind of, oh. I don't know when it got adapted into that, but that's the setting it remains in till huh. this day. Also, I'm not going to say that all the bad luck we're experiencing now is because of cursed gyms, but I will say that America officially owns quite a few of them, and they're all in public places for display. I feel like I said the same thing about the demon Zozo, which is also apparently the 2020 demon. I feel like this year doesn't need help being yeah. horrible, but there's enough stuff that's like, mm, that's kind of a tick mark against you that gems the Ouija board demon. I'm sure it all isn't helping our situation. But it's all, it's all like, oh, it belongs at the Smithsonian or the Natural History of Museum, which technically is funded by the public. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> Your tax dollars go to cursing you. <laughs> what if I were to tell you that Elizabeth Taylor actually owned some some key gems in her lifetime? Of course she did. That's just how she rolls. Yeah. Well, one of her favorites was the La Perdinia Pearl. Oh. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. La Pergrinia, I'm sorry. Pearl. Okay. It's 50.6 carat pearl, which how big is that, Rue? Ah, uh, it's giant still. Less giant than some of the other stones we've discussed today, but it's a big sucker. It's a pearl, too. Yeah. So that is, that is massive. Can I just say mother of pearl? Oh, I oh. like it. That must have been a big oyster. Yeah. Okay. So it's set in kind of a teardrop formation, and currently, I believe it's in this very elaborate pearl necklace with it mm -hmm. as a, a dangling piece. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend that you guys look some of these up because they're just beautiful regardless. I'll put some pictures on Facebook when this episode releases. Right on. But La Pergrinia means the pilgrim or the wanderer in Spanish, which I'm probably butchering terribly. Okay. And the pearl was discovered in the Gulf of Panama during the 16th century. King Philip II of Spain gifted the pearl to Queen Mary I of England before their marriage in 1554, but he later abandoned her and she died in 1558 without an heir, unfortunately. As we know, she was nicknamed Bloody Mary mm -hmm. after her death because of hundreds of Protestants she ordered to be executed during her five-year reign. She's then preceded by Queen Elizabeth I. So following Mary's death, the pearl was then returned to King Philip II, who decided, ah, it's a really nice gem. I think I'll propose to marry the first younger half-sister, Elizabeth I, with it. Oh. Which, by the way, guys, guys, if you have ever proposed to a woman with a piece of jewelry, you don't turn around and propose to someone else with that same piece of jewelry. No matter what a giant pearl it is. You take no that matter, giant yeah, pearl take to the pawn store. <laughs> And you get something else, all right? Yeah. That's a bad move. Yeah. Especially if it's her younger half-sister. She'd be like, wow, this looks so familiar. Gee, I wonder where I've seen this. Yeah. Well, we know Elizabeth and Mary had a very trepidatious relationship Which over the years. Which even more so makes me think that she would have shown it off to rub it in her face and be like, where's your giant pearl? <laughs> oh, 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 your mother was beheaded. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. me and my pearl are going to go have tea. So it was worn by Spanish royalty until the 19th century when Napoleon Bonaparte invades France and seizes the Spanish crown. And of course, what did he get with it? He got himself a pearl. He got himself a pearl. As as you could have guessed, Elizabeth I was like, yeah, no. 
<laughs> yeah. That marriage proposal. So it's passed down to members of the Bonaparte family, Ooh. but was sold to Lord James Hamilton in 1873. Then it goes on to be sold later at the Sotheby's auction in 1969 to Richard Burton, who gives it to his wife, Elizabeth Taylor, as a Valentine's Day present. The couple married and divorced twice, with their second marriage lasting only nine months. Elizabeth Taylor holds on to the pearl, and then she marries a total of eight times. Yep. After her death in 2011, it was auctioned again and bought for $11.8 million by an anonymous buyer at a Christie's auction. Damn. Yeah. Wowzers. Okay. So that one's curse is said to be the curse of broken love. Oh, but at least you get a giant pearl out of it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you get a giant pearl, but... I mean, he said Elizabeth Taylor kept it, and, you know, I feel like in some instances, shitty marriage versus dope pearl, I think the truth is pretty obvious. Yeah. So now I'm going to tell you about the Black Orlov, the Eye Abrama Diamond. So this is a 67 and a half carat cushion cut diamond. Do you know what a cushion cut is? It's like squarey kind of, but like soft edges. It is squarey kind of, but soft edges. And I'm impressed that you know that. Good for you. Yeah. I, I had to look shit up to get engaged. So it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> it's unearthed in India during the early 1800s. Remember India's main puzzle is that they have diamonds and nobody else does yeah. at this time. Now, despite its name, the Black Orlov, is actually a deep gunmetal gray in color. It's not black, mm. but sometimes it kind of looks black. Like a know. smoky kind of... Like a charcoal gray, I'd say. Ooh. It's freaking beautiful. And it That's comes in deep. high on the list of Jesse Wants That. I, it also sounds like it's pretty high on the Rue Wants That. Like we can work out a custody agreement. You can have it yeah, for these am... months. I'll have it for those months. It'll be fine. I am all for that. It is set um, surrounded by diamonds oh. and in an that is also uh, surrounded by diamonds that looks to be princess cut, cushion cut, and uh, two kind of diamondy looking cuts. I forget what those are called. Paired together to almost reflect leaves. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So once again, this has one of the stories as many cursed gems that it was stolen from a shrine in Southern India. Yeah. At the time, they claimed that it was 195 carats. So double giant. Right. And that it was allegedly removed from the eye of a statue of Brahma, the Hindu god of creation, wisdom, and magic. Huh. So legend has it that it, it's later then acquired by the Russian princess Nazda Orlov, okay. also known as Nadina Orlov, who the stone's then named after. Gotcha. According to The Nature of Diamonds, which is a book, it is rumored that Princess Nadinia, along with two of Black Orlov's other owners, upon attaining the diamond, took her own life by jumping off of a building. Oh no. And so did the previous owners. But these stories, we don't really know if they've been substantiated or not. Yeah. So if 1947 rolls around and Charles F. Winston brought buys the diamond and cuts it into its current size and places it in a setting surrounded by 108 diamonds hanging in on a necklace of 124 diamonds it's been purchased and resold many times by private owners and has been displayed at several museums including the american museum of natural history in new york city and london's natural history museum i feel like this is just another cautionary tale that we don't steal things that are religious um creations from other countries but you know 
Yeah. Next up is a blue diamond, and it's said to have a mysterious curse. Ooh. The blue diamond is the only precious stone whose current whereabouts are eh, unknown. All right. So its existence has been questioned many times, but it continues to be a source of drama amongst people who know about cursed gems. Maybe we can start some cursed gem drama amongst our listeners here. Because the story begins in 1989, when a Thai janitor employed at the Saudi royal family's palace crept into the Prince Fasal's bin Fahad's bedroom. Mm-hmm. Please help. I'm so sorry about my pronunciation, guys. And he steals just a large amount of jewelry, including a blue diamond that's said to be bigger than the current dimensions of the blue diamond. So once again, he steals a diamond and then supposedly gets cut down over time. Gotcha, right. Allegedly, he hides these jewels in a bag of his vacuum cleaner and then smuggles them into Thailand. Although Thai authorities maintain that there's no evidence that the blue diamond even has ever existed. Mm -hmm. According to the press, after Saudi authorities alert the police of the crime, they capture the thief, but not before he sold off some of the jewels. He's then sentenced to seven years in prison, but was released after three. Which, three years is not that bad for stealing a bunch of jewels from a royal. So the officials return what's left of these stolen gems to the royal family, and the royal family assert that the blue diamond was missing, and that half of the jewels referred returned were complete and utter fakes. So that's very interesting. So the murders and disappearances of several Saudi diplomats and businessmen who had flown back to Bangkok to investigate the robbery have been linked to the so-called Blue Diamond Affair. But Thai authorities insist that there's no proof that the events are connected. So in 1995, Charlotte Kernethes, the police officer in charge of the initial investigation, is then sentenced to death for ordering the murder of the wife and 14-year-old son of the jeweler who had been accused of making the imitation jewels. His sentence has since been reduced to 50 years, and the case of the Blue Diamond continues to strain Saudi-Thai diplomatic relations, according to an article published in The Economist in September of 2010. So, because of all these deaths that are associated with this gem, the blue diamond is said to place a curse on anyone who handles it legally. Huh, okay. Now we're gonna talk about the Stancy diamond. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, so it's pear-shaped. Okay. And it appears to be white, but it actually has a very pale yellow tint to it. Okay. It weighs in a whopping 55.23 carats. Very nice. And much like all the other diamonds, is believed to have originated in India. So Nicholas Harley de Stance, a French soldier who would later become a French ambassador to Turkey, buys the diamond in 1570. He rented the diamond to Henry III of France in 1589 and then to Henry VI. So in 1604, Stancy sells the diamond to James I of England, who wore the stone as a good luck charm. So legends tell that while the diamond was being transported by, I, what's Ivy sixth? Ivy is fourth. Oh, I'm sorry. Henry IV, King Henry IV's men. The courier was robbed and murdered. He had swallowed the jewel to keep it safe, and the Stancy was later recovered from his stomach during an autopsy, according to the myth. Oh, no. That sounds so sharp. Yeah, so it disappears during the French Revolution when Royal Treasury was raided and it was stolen along with the Regent Diamond and the Hope Diamond. It resurfaces in about 1828 when it's bought by the Russian Prince Nicholas Demidov, Hmm. who then passes it down to his son Paul. A Bombay merchant then bought the diamond and exhibited it in Paris in 1867. Then it's sold to Wildemordoff Astor. Why is that name familiar? I don't know. 
1906 and stayed in the family until 1978 when it sold to the Louvre Museum in Paris. Aster? Yeah. You don't know the name Aster? I don't think so. Uh, one of the Aster, well, two of the Astors went down with the sinking of the Titanic. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So John Jacob Astor and Madeline Astor perished in the sinking of the Titanic. Well, no, not okay. Madeline, but John Jacob Astor gotcha. perished in the sinking of the Titanic. So if the name Astor sounds familiar. Okay. I believe it's the same family. Don't quote me on that 100%, but mm. it's around the same time period where they were very, very rich and procuring hmm. a lot of this stuff. So. Right on. Yeah. So, what if I were to tell you that the Black Orlov has a sister diamond? All right. Tell me about it. Okay. It's bumpy, but it looks cool. Uh, It's known to be a relic of failed romance, so another cursed romantic diamond. And like its sister, the Black Orlov diamond, which has kind of a faint bluish-greenish tinge, Mm -hmm. it's rumored to once have served as the eye of a Hindu god statue. Okay. So, the rose-cut diamond has uh, kind of a dome shape that mm-hmm. resembles half of an egg. Okay. It comes in at 189.62 carats, and it's one of the largest found diamonds in the world. Mm-hmm. So legend has it that during the 18th century, a French soldier stole it from a Hindu temple in Tamil Nadu, India, and it's then sold and resold until it ends up in Amsterdam, where it's bought by Grigory Gregovich Orloff, a Russian count. Okay. So... He had been having an affair with Catherine II when she was married to Peter III of Russia. If you guys watch uh, Catherine the Great, there right. you go. Nice. And uh, so Peter III's ultimately dethroned in the end, and Catherine subsequently becomes Catherine the Great of Russia and has an illegitimate child with Count Orlov. So she ultimately leaves the Count for a Russian prince, and the heartbroken Orlov gave her the giant diamond as an attempt to win her back. Hmm. His grand romantic gesture was completely unsuccessful, but Catherine named the diamond after him and had it set in a royal scepter. Currently, it's part of the Kremlin Diamond Fund and exhibit in Moscow, showcasing Russia's crown jewels. Hmm. So next is the Regent Diamond, which is known as the Pond Pit Diamond. The Regent Diamond is mined in 1701 in India, big surprise, and it comes in at about 410 carats in its original uncut form. Oh, wow. We get some morbid myths with this one. Okay. So it's said that it was found by a slave who managed to conceal it inside of a large self-inflicted wound in his leg. <gasps> oh, so the- no. That's a big freaking wound. A really big freaking wound. Like, so, ow. Like, ow, ow. 410 yeah. carat. 410, Ooh. guys. So then... After stealing the diamond from the mine, he conspires with the English sea captain to smuggle it away on a ship. But the captain decides to drown the slave and sells the diamond. Mm. An English governor named Thomas Pitt buys it, and it kind of has this pale blue tint. He decides he's going to name it after himself. Mm-hmm. He then has the diamond cut into its current size of 140.64 carats. And he sells it to a French regent by the name of Philip II of Orleans in 1717. The diamonds then renamed as the regent, and the French royal family showed it off in several settings, including the crown of King Louis XV. The 15th. The 15th. So in 1792, the regent's stolen, but it's located a couple months later. The stone was then later pawned to a Berlin jeweler to help raise funds for the French army. So Napoleon Bonaparte claims the diamond in 1801 having it set into the handle of his sword which 
I don't know if I'd want diamonds in my sword. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't know. So not a fan, but you know. But also, to be fair though, his sword was like very ornamental as well. Like, I mean, they're they're using guns. His sword's kind of a status symbol, honestly. That's true. And so then, so it's no different than like having a jeweled crown at that point. He's like, oh look, hmm, yes. So following his death in 1821, his widow, the Archduchess Marie Louise of Austria, brings the diamond with her to mm-hmm. Austria. But it's then kind of later returned to France as a present. The regent then goes on to grace crowns of Louis XVIII. The 18th. And Charles X. The 10th. And Napoleon the Third. There you go. Currently, it remains set in a diadem design for the French Emperor Eugene. And is on display at the Louvre Museum in Paris, along with the other gem that we talked about, the Stancy Diamond. So... Next, I'm going to tell you about the Star of India, the Stolen Star. It's a deep blue oval star sapphire, and it's known as the Star of India. It weighs in at 563.35 carats. Damn. And unlike the other gemstones that we've kind of talked about before, this one is rounded, polished, circular, rather than faucet. So it's the largest found blue sapphire in the world. And it's believed to trace back to Sri Lanka, where it was discovered an estimated 300 years ago. Mm. The stone is rare, and it has a characteristic star design. So I want you to picture this as almost like a, kind of like a ball, but not a perfect one. And when the light reflects it, it creates kind of the star image. Okay. So it's really more about how the light hits it. Yeah. Then about the shape. Okay. So its star design occurs naturally within the museum, creating the faucets where light reflects. Huh. Tiny fibers on the mineral's threefold pattern within the gem causes incoming light to reflect a star pattern. This is an effect known as asterism, in case you're wondering. Hmm. So 1909 rolls around and the Star of India is donated by industrialist J.P. Morgan to mm-hmm. the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Once again, here we go. We own another cursed thing. Yep. Until it was stolen from the museum in 1964 when oh. a group of thieves leave, left a bathroom window unlocked during the day. So they climbed through this window at night and they took a bunch of stuff, including the gym. Oh, at I the time, that. it was uninsured. And it was the only gym in the museum's exhibit that was protected by an alarm. But as luck would have it, the alarm's battery was dead, so the thieves were able to make off with it. The men snatched the gym, along with several other precious stones that were on exhibit, and what'd they do? Condom? Climb back out the window. Oh, well, yeah, that. Oh, what? Did you just say condom? <laughs> no, I said pond them. Oh, no, they climbed back out the window. Well, yeah, I, I guess that <laughs> is step one, leave the building. Leave the building. So it was one of the biggest uh, gym heists in American history. But the thieves are captured within only two days. So some of the stolen gems are never seen again. And the Star of India was miraculously recovered in a Miami bus station locker several months later. Wow. How many people do you think lost their job at the museum? Oh, so many, right? Like, who's our insurance liaison or broker or whatever? Uh, yeah, you're gone. You didn't have that insured. What do you mean that we didn't have the 563 or carry uh, Who's insured. the guy who replaces the batteries? Yeah, you're fired. Yeah, you're done (laughs) bye-bye goodbye so this all brings us up to the coup de gras the grand diamond of them all some might say the hope diamond the hope diamond comes in at 45.52 carats okay 
Its length is 25.60 millimeters and its width is 21.78 millimeters. It has a depth of 12 millimeters. It's cushion cut. It's currently set in an antique brilliant setting and it's, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Hope Diamond is also very, very blue for those of you who are not familiar with the gem. We got the Hope Diamond during the Cold War and public anxiety starts running very high. Many people wrote to the Smithsonian begging them to turn down the diamond and not to accept the hope. Many letter writers write the Smithsonian and even President Eisenhower saying that this will bring a curse upon America. Oh, wow. While cartoonists at the time parodied the idea of the United States and Uncle Sam being cursed. There's your little preview of what's to come. So the original curse of the Hope Diamond is completely made up, but it was a story carefully crafted to design this large story to help it sell and reveal the diamond's history in the process, which is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. So the basic story of the original curse goes like this. The blue diamond had originally been a roughly cut gem of about 112 carats when a French diamond merchant by the name of Jean-Baptiste Trivenaire first acquires it in Glaconda region of India in the mid-1600s. Now, like we've talked about, India is the only known source of diamonds in the world at this time. And as they haven't really been discovered yet in Brazil or South Africa. Mm -hmm. So there's a multitude of stories about how diamonds were obtained and stories that go back to ancient times and retold people like Marco Polo. But it was Trivenier who actually went to see the diamond mines firsthand and who comes back with his full descriptions of these diamonds. He also bought hundreds of diamonds at the time and would trade them with pearls that he acquired from the Middle East along the way. The Indians had elaborate ideas about gemstones, believing that they had protective powers. They did not cut gemstones at all the way that we do. Instead, they tended to preserve as much of the stone as they could, only cutting out cracks and other imperfections. It's believed this maximized their ability to protect ones from evil influences. The idea that gems absorbed negative influences and contained them within the stone, kind of like a Pandora's box, or um, what's another thing that we, like in Wiccans, use to kind of absorb negative energy? Well, I know a lot of people who practice witchcraft even today will still use crystals for that. Yeah, to absorb negative energy. Yeah. That's true. So rulers wore lots of diamonds and other gems. The bigger, the better. Not only were they status symbols at the time, but they were believed to be a protective force against the ruler wearing them. So then the Portuguese, French, Dutch, German, and English dealers and merchant dealers flocked to India to procure diamonds by the hundreds. But no one acquires more gems or made better deals than Travenier. So he makes about six trips to India between the years 1630 and maybe like 1670. And he returns to France after one of these trips in 1668, where he meets King Louis XIV. The 14th. King Louis the 14th of France at the newly built Versailles Palace. Some people call it Versailles, but isn't it Versailles? It's Versailles. The people who say Versailles are very wrong and they're from Missouri because <laughs> Missouri has a Versailles, Missouri, where there's about $2 generals and not much else. And it makes Versailles. me cringe every time I drive through it. So he sells this, the original 112 carat blue diamond, along with about 200 other diamonds, to King Louis the 14th. To King Louis the 14th. So it's a big blue diamond, and diamonds that are blue and large of that size were incredibly rare. Hmm. So the king's artist drew a diagram upon record uh, procuring this diamond mm -hmm. to record the acquisition. So I have the original drawing 
here pulled up on oh, my computer cool. so I can try to describe this to you guys. Now, remember in India, they only cut the smoke, the stones to remove imperfections. Yeah. So it was a larger stone. Picture it to look about what a human heart kind of looks like. Okay. A little bit. Uh, it has a large diamond shape cut on the top and mm. smaller cuts around the side to kind of level it out. Uh, it appears to be large and flat. Okay. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Mm -hmm. So King Louis XIV was called the Sun King. And if you've ever been to Versailles, I mean, you know why. He's viewed his reign as one of enlightenment and letting the light of divine kingship and knowledge and beauty in the arts really shine. Yeah. So in Versailles, there's a glass, there's a ton of glass chandeliers that are exquisitely cut to reflect and reflect reflect and refract that's a hard thing to say say that yeah reflect and refract. reflect and refract the light mirrors windows and dazzling use of light in the architecture are everywhere and with diamonds for him this was very similar because mm -hmm. he accumulates the greatest collection of crown jewels in the continent at the time wow so many european gem cutters were influenced by the renaissance ideas of using optics and geometry to manipulate the light within gems mm -hmm. and they come up with ways to cut diamonds predictably so that they could alter the stones reflective and refractive properties to let mm -hmm. the light out of the diamond and let it shine these are techniques that are still used today wow so louis the 14th has this blue diamond cut down from a roughly 112 carats into the symmetrical beautiful gem of 67 carats and man does it sparkle and shine and reflect the light refract the light <sighs> reflect and refracts that light like it is it's gorgeous so it's recorded in the royal inventory and renamed the french blue mm. today it's valued about 3.6 million dollars well that's right not even an elizabeth taylor pearl well that Why one's making such a big deal out of it <laughs> it's like a fraction of the price <laughs> So he wears it simply hanging from a ribbon around his neck or on a brooch. So casual. Super casual. It's passed down a bunch um, and goes on to the rest of his line to the king's Louis XV. 15th. And Louis XVI, 16th. The 16th, yeah. Yeah, they wore the diamond as part of knightly decoration. So kind of as we talked about a a, a ribbon of valor or gotcha. something like that. You said knightly decoration. <laughs> And I didn't oh, realize yes. you meant with the K. I thought you were like, these are my PJs. Don't you love my hope, Diamond? <laughs> Lumber party attire. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm, I'm on board now. But I was That like, might be better because what they did to this thing was hideous. I have one of the original drawings of how it was worn. Um, it displayed in the Golden Fleece of King Louis the 16th of France. And it's basically a big clump of jewels hmm. depicted in like leafy things. And then they have some emerald cut yellow diamonds. And then there's this tiger made of, I would assume is some sort of red jade or maybe a spinel. And then it's got a little bit of rubies. And then there's the hope, what we now know as the hope. Uh -huh. And hanging from the hope appears to be a dead sheep smashed in the middle i mean respectively that's not really my aesthetic it's gaudy and it looks i mean i'm sure there's symbolism beyond all those things oh i'm sure i much rather prefer it in its current setting yeah so he calls this the golden fleece and it's hideous all right <laughs> so there
there are some rumors that the diamond was even worn by Marie Antoinette, but there's absolutely no evidence of it. Many people link the downfall of Marie Antoinette and her husband, who was imprisoned after the outbreak of the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. as being the fault of the Hope Diamond. But really, once again, Queen Marie Antoinette, we really don't have evidence that she wore it. So after the French Revolution, the crown jewels are put in a warehouse and publicly exhibited. And then in September of 1792, were stolen. Love it. Oh, yeah. So Napoleon later becomes emperor of France and he swears to recover all the French jewels, including the blue diamond. But he failed. I could not find the French blue. Sacre bleu. I'm okay. living for the accent right now. Thank you. That's my Napoleon, which I should have been doing all throughout this time, I realized. You really because... probably should have, but, you know, I'm better <laughs> late than never. Right. So it goes missing for about 20 years until a smaller 45-carat blue diamond pops up in London around 1812 in the possession mm. of an English diamond merchant named Daniel Elison. So he doesn't say where it came from, but there is mass speculation that it was cut down from the original French Bleu. I found it. Yeah, so if you're going to hide a very notorious stolen diamond, what's probably the first move you're going to make? You're going to cut it down a little bit, change the shape of it, and be like, no, that's not the diamond. I found it in a locker in a bus depot. No, my friend didn't crawl through the window for that at all. It's drawn in a document at the time, and it's the same one that's on the Smithsonian today. So it matches uh, the one that we have on exhibit today. So he sold the blue diamond Mm -hmm. to the British King George IV, sixth? The fourth. Fourth? The fourth. British King George Fourth. And some called it the George Blue Diamond. So George IV celebrates the diamond and as a trophy for defeating his enemy, Napoleon. He wears the blue diamond in this golden fleece decoration, uh, which I'm hoping is different than the other golden fleece decoration. I would hope But so. I, I don't think that it is at this awesome. point. It's yeah. the same ugly gaudy thing with the smashed sheep and the dangling from the bottom. Delightful. So, I know. It's, I'm going to send you a picture of this and you're going to be like, this is disgusting. Okay. <laughs> So he was kind of a spendthrift and he's known to have almost bankrupted the throat. So after he dies in 1830, his executor, the Duke of Wellington, had to sell the Bloom Diamond to pay off his debts. He sells it to Henry Philip Hope, the great diamond collector, which of course is where we get the name the Hope Diamond. Gosh, I have always wondered that. I was like, does it mean it's a hopeful little stone? I like, I had no idea where it came from no it's named after a person to acquire it so it's set in a diamond medallion with a hanging pearl he called it the blue diamond his number one but after some years it starts becoming known as the hope diamond as it's his diamond it it passes down his family a little bit they're among one of english well england's wealthiest families at the time Mm. so they accumulate a bunch of land castles dutch paintings other riches not Dutch people, but paintings, Dutch paintings. Okay, yeah, there was a like quite implied comment. <laughs> I know, I paused there and I felt the need to like, he didn't got acquire the Dutch, pearls, it was Dutch paintings. Got some Dutch, got some pearls, got, got Dutch, 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 Dutch paintings. paintings. <laughs> 
So in a few generations, they squander all of their wealth. Oops. And in 1887, the diamond is inherited by Lord Francis Hope, Henry Philip Hope's great-grand-nephew, which, hey, to be a great-grand-nephew and inherit it, that's pretty good. I've never gotten anything from any of my uncles, so I would definitely take the Hope diamond. <laughs> so he bets very badly on horses. He has a gambling addiction, and he does some really bad business dealings, and he has an American showgirl wife, Mae Yahor, and he lost his fortune in his wife due due to his gambling debts and bad decisions. I'm just hearing John Mulaney when he does the iced tea bit. (laughs) You mean when you like to spend too much money on the ponies? (laughs) (laughs) So after the series of court cases, he was allowed to sell this Hope Diamond, and it was purchased by the New York jeweler Joseph Frankel and Sons Company in 1901. Now, Frankel's hoped to make a quick sale and a big profit, mm-hmm. and they put up a lot of their business capital to buy the Hope Diamond, but instead they overvalued it, and it just sits in their vault. So they're getting a little, oh. a little panicked about this. Yeah. And in 1907, the bankers panic did not help things. It was basically a recession that took a toll on the company to mass effect. Frankel's was diamond rich, but really cash poor and going bankrupt. No one really had the money at the time to buy this massive stone that they've overvalued. Right. So this is when the first stories about the new Hope Diamond curse starts popping up. And it's very tied to being unlucky in financial regards. Mm -hmm. So... The first story is about it starts popping up about it being unlucky in the New York Times in 1909. They chronicle that the gym was responsible for Frankel's failure because technically it kind of was. He he overvalued it and he acquired it and then no one bought it. So yeah. it's sitting there and they're out all this capital. So other newspapers in Washington and London decide they're going to pick up the story and run it. But every time a new paper ran it, it would become increasingly elaborate. Mm. Speaking of the baleful influences and the power of the mysterious rays that emanated below the glittering surface of the diamond that unleashed evil upon any of those who possessed it. Oh my. These stories go on to blame the executions of Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette. It's XVI. That's the 16th. Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette. Look, this would be a lot easier if all the kings didn't have the name same name. <laughs> their child after each other. Okay, so. They blame also Hope's bankruptcy and divorce on it and the Frankel company's collapse all on the Hope Diamonds. So now it's getting kind of a bad rap. It's finally sold at a ridiculously low bargain price to other diamond dealers. Finally coming into the possession of the Cartier brothers in Paris. Pierre Cartier was enchanted with the novel The Moonstone written decades earlier, uh, I guess it was The Moonstone, written decades earlier by English author Wilkie Collins. Now, in this story, a large yellow diamond had formed in the eye of an idol of a Hindu deity temple in India. The diamond literally embodied the power of the god, and there it rested until it's looted by a Muslim conqueror and taken to his treasury. So years later, British colonial soldiers looted the treasury in the battle and takes this yellow diamond back to England. Their tragedy, murder, kidnapping, and insanity followed the possession of the ill-begotten gem. The god had cursed the stone, and an evil force would emanate rays from the stone and strike misfortune on all who owned it until it was properly returned to the deity back in India. So a lot of people believe that Cartier's obsession with this story is where he devised a story similar that he used to then sell the diamond. Okay. He used fictional and historical elements to blend 
uh, into this tale when he approaches Evelyn and Ned McLean in 1910. Now, Cartier already had a relationship with this immensely wealthy couple, as he had sold them many large diamonds, including one when they vacationed in Paris immediately after their marriage. So he applies the Moonstone story to the Hope Diamond, interweaving facts about where the diamond was actually procured in its journey along the way, picking up the pieces about Marie Antoinette and Hope, and the downfall of our previous diamond-owning company. So he tells the couple it was cursed by a Hindu god and embellished a little bit more, blaming the French, the Turkish, and other revolutions on its baleful influence. So Evelyn is entranced by the story. I mean, who wouldn't be, right? And she decides later that she has to have this diamond. The McLeans were among the richest families in the United States. They owned a lot of things, real estate, banks, in the Washington Post, just to name, you know, a couple. So McLean, Virginia is actually even named after the family. Oh, wow. They owned luxury, luxurious and valuable real estate. Um, they had homes all over the place, including Palm Beach, Newport, Maine, Ball Harbor, Rhode Island, and so many more. So they just exemplify the later years of the Gilded Age, mm-hmm. using flaunting and even some would say wasting their gigantic fortune on over-the-top yeah. acquisitions, right? Right. So Evelyn gets this diamond. Which is big a- Jesse energy. Like... If, if Kanye <laughs> shows me this diamond, he's like, hey, uh, so fun fact, this is super hella cursed because it was a Hindu deity and it's been stolen a lot. <laughs> My thoughts would be, well, thank you so much, Mr. Cartier, for, for showing, showing this me. To me. I never want anything to do with it ever again. And you would be like, hmm, how much though? I'd be like, what a rich history. How much are you asking? Yeah. Which is kind of what Evelyn is like. And in fact, she had a deal with Cartier that was even written up into this formal contract stating that if the curse became enacted within six months of her owning the diamond, she would be able to return the diamond to Cartier and get a full refund. Wowzers. Yeah, so it is some big Jesse energy there because that's exactly what I do. I'd be like, all right, so if the curse starts happening, like I can get my money back, right? But until then. Yeah, and okay. while while you were doing up that paperwork, I would be like at the ice cream shop around the corner having zilch to do with any of this. <laughs> You'd come and I'd be like, look at what I just got. And I'd be like, don't want to see it. Don't want to. I would be like, if I was a felon who knew my pretty? friend had a gun, I'd be like, I want to know about it. I want to talk about it. I want to see it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> she wears the diamond at these extravagant parties and she parades it around Washington and made much to do about it publicly mm-hmm. until 1919 when her 10-year-old son Vincent was struck down and killed by a car near their Washington DC estate. Oh. Newspapers immediately jumped to say that the Hope Diamond was really cursed and that it caused this and they wondered who would next be struck by the diamonds fortunes and malignant light rays it was as if all the negative energy that was locked inside this uncut diamond had now been unleashed upon the possessors because of the cutting so a lot of stories come to parody this as like a pandora's box yeah that had been opened by stealing it from this hindu deity but you got to remember this is a story that was heavily influenced by cartier's and like we talked about earlier it's really hard to say well it's very true that a lot of gems were probably stolen from hindu statues and things Mm -hmm. like that this story really marketed diamonds well and people for some reason had to have them with this history yeah so it is hard to say how many diamonds this is just tacked onto and how many Mm -hmm. were actually 
have a history of this. I would not put it past the English. Let me say no, that first out and foremost. Not. I'm sure that there is history of this. Yeah. But also there's a story going around and diamonds are selling at much higher price if they've been tied mm. or have some connection to this. So it's all yeah. kind of murky and meh. So the cursed story is then only amplified by ensuing events because Ned McLean goes insane and the family lost the Washington Post in bankruptcy. Despite Evelyn desperately trying to use the Hope Diamond as a collateral for a loan, she actually pawned the Hope Diamond in 1932 to hire an investigator to track down the kidnappers of Charles Lindbergh's baby. Oh, snap. Right. The remaining money was to be used for a possible ransom, but if anyone knows that story, you know that unfortunately Charles right. Lindbergh's son was found dead yeah. and the money wasn't needed as they made an arrest. So the diamond wow. was returned. There is a beautiful picture that just is, once again, big Jesse energy there, mm-hmm. of of Evelyn wearing the Hope Diamond and just casually taking a picture of herself in the mirror because she mm. really enjoyed the hobby of photography. And for some reason, that just really speaks to me uh. because photography wasn't, you know, yeah. I mean, when you're rich and you can afford photography, right. then, yeah, but she's it's not cool taking selfies her... on her iphone no 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 it's yeah. a big chunky camera and she's just wearing it with like blue jeans and a top it's very oh, casual wow. like i just love it wow. so over the years she uses the diamond for charitable purposes such as washington's grand social maven mm-hmm. which i don't really know what that is i should have looked more into it but eh. yeah. holding it or seeing it was often a prize for buying a raffle ticket or attending a benefit that she would be a uh, philanthropist of gotcha she lends the diamond to brides there's something blue which i think is incredible yeah she even had her great dane mike wear the diamond around his neck at one point That's and in cute. his autobiography she expresses her ambivalence about the hope diamond wow. sometimes poo-pooing the curse and at other times wondering if the curse was payback for money and time misspent and flittered away huh. so in 1946 another tragedy strikes when her daughter evie takes oh. her life evelyn dies in 1947 and the estate sells the hope diamond to harry winston right so a decade later the diamond comes to the smithsonian and when it does the harry winston had sent it via mail okay it's given an acquisition number just like any other smithsonian object and it goes by the number 217868 it came in a setting crafted by cartier originally and it has 16 1.15 carat diamonds surrounding the main blue stone and a necklace of 42 diamonds set in platinum the hope diamond itself weighs about 45.52 carats and if you look very closely there's a little attachment at the bottom of it and this would be where evelyn uh would wear additional gems tacked onto the hope diamond because you know Hmm. if the hope diamond wasn't enough well certainly go big or go home she'd add another big diamond underneath it changing it up for different events Hmm. so One thing that's very interesting is that since it's been owned by the Smithsonian, they've conducted numerous scientific studies on the diamond. Basically, the gem is like a biopsy of the Earth. It formed in crystallized carbon at about 90 miles below the Earth's surface about a billion years ago. It's risen to the surface relatively slowly through a volcanic vent on Indian's Deccan Plateau, and then it was carried by rivers and streams to a field where it's eventually mined. When asked about the curse, curator Jeff Post says, since the arrival of the Hope Diamond, the National Gem Collection has grown steadily in size 
and stature, and today is considered one of the many finest public displays of the gem in the world. But the Smithsonian, the Hope Diamond, has obviously been a source of good luck. Great generosity has flowed from Winston's philanthropic interest. Following Winston, Mrs. John Logan donates the 423 carat Logan Sapphire, and Major Merriweather Post donated the Napoleon necklace of the 31 carat Blue Heart Diamond. In the Wilkinsons of Leonard and Victoria give a 68 carat diamond and Anna Burke Hooker gave a large emerald and yellow diamonds and so on. So because of Harry Winston donating the Hope Diamond, they were able to acquire all these rare stones that really tell the story of the earth as a whole. That's cool. And are very valuable to geologists. And hopefully all of these stones are insured and we've learned from our past transgressions. We would hope so. And we change the batteries as needed. <laughs> Okay, so like I said, he sends it via mail, which is a bold move to say the least. Mm -hmm. It arrives, the original packaging that it arrives in is also on display in the Smithsonian. I believe uh, the mailman that brought it later has a heart attack. Oh. That's blamed on the Hope Diamond. Um, Many people carried it and the curse has only gotten bigger and grander over time. Mm -hmm. One thing that I kind of want to talk about and end this story on Okay, so in 2009, the Smithsonian runs a little bit of a competition where you could vote for the Hope Diamond to be reset. And in 2010, the new setting was displayed. And I hated the new setting. Okay. Let me tell you the names of the settings that they were up to vote for. One of the settings include the Journey of Hope, which is basically two strands of diamonds and three strands kind of coming out of the Hope Diamond, which is set off to the side, making it appear almost like a meteorite in a little Mm -hmm. bit. Embracing Hope, which was very thick strands of diamonds encircling the Hope Diamond. And then it has a little tail thing at the end. It's very classic, I'd say. Um, The other one reminds me, the Journey of Hope reminds me of something like a politician's wife would wear. And then there was the Renewed Hope setting, which has some strong Art Deco vibes in my opinion it's one strand oh how do I explain this okay it's kind of a one strand of cushion cut diamonds very close together to almost appear to be one stone string encircling the neck Mm -hmm. and then princess cut diamonds it following a similar pattern below that and then it's displayed with a tiers of different diamonds dangling from it in a very art deco fashion okay the one that won was embracing hope which is in my opinion gaudy and kind of looks like something out of the 80s i would have much preferred a vote for the new hope diamond to have been renewed hope yeah i I know what you're talking about and to me it almost it looks very like you said kind of 80s kind of dated it looks a little bit like the cancer ribbons to me yes it does okay and, I'm glad you and said it that cause... seems like it kind of dwarfs the stone like it, it can barely keep up against what it's being framed by which is such right. a shame because it's such a grand stone that it really deserves to kind of stand alone, alone. and right. be accentuated rather than dwarfed right uh so I was not pleased at all with this when I was watching some amazing documentaries on the resetting of the stone which are just fascinating and I Mm. highly suggest uh if you get a chance to watch the hope diamond that you do it's a documentary that talks about the recreation and replacement of the stone I forget who did it but it was amazing um yeah 
so it sat in this gaudy setting for a while and then they replaced it into its original setting to which is displayed till this day good and that my friends is the story of the curse of the hope diamond and several other cursed stones may you someday have big jesse energy and possibly procure one may i someday have big there you go. possibly procure one as well <laughs> there you go well that is awesome i had no yeah. idea about like any i mean obviously i know the hope diamond but i don't think i knew about any of those because i'm not a big jewelry person in general so it was like clearly as we've learned from my not knowing what a carrot is <laughs> so i was like ooh, tell me all about the shiny things i am all about well i love jewelry mm-hmm. i don't wear a lot of it just in my daily work unfortunately because it's only a problem when i'm working but um i absolutely love jewelry it's a huge thing one of the things i really collect a lot is antique jewelry mm-hmm. when i find a great piece i think it's so interesting but more than that i love tales of curses which is going to pop yeah. up a lot on supposedly i I believe I've already done uh, an Egyptian curse already. Yep. So unfortunately, as we were talking about the end of Jessie, her internet crashed and she can't get it back up. So for Jesse and myself, I figured I would sign off and say happy Thanksgiving if that is a thing you are celebrating and stay safe, wear your mask. And we will catch you next time. So in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SupposedlyPod. And if you want to send us an email with one of your personal stories, then you can email us at SupposedlyPod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the show notes where I'll have some links for ways to get involved with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women efforts. And until then, we will see you next time, my friends. So thank you so much for joining us and join us next time on Supposedly. Supposedly.